Okay, uh, this is, I guess, week four of the semester, but technically week three of our series, because Darwin stepped outside the series last week, which was great. Um, we're talking about the mission of God, and um, just a quick review to bring us up to speed where we've been thus far in the first couple weeks. Um, that first week, I made some big claims about mission being not just a secondary theme of the Bible, but actually one of and arguably the central theme of the Bible. And uh, we, we said, obviously, the Bible is all about Jesus, but then we asked the question, well, what about Jesus? What, what, what about Jesus? It's about His mission in the world, that of revealing who God is, and then also His mission to, uh, of rescue, to seek and save the lost. And so the Bible as a whole is one story of God's mission. That, that is the theme running throughout the Bible. It's most clearly seen in Jesus, but it's throughout the Bible. So, Ryan's in my objective, and I promise Ryan actually is going to teach at some point. He really hung me out to dry this week on preaching and then going on vacation is what he did, so that's okay. Um, he's going to pick up five weeks at some point. Uh, Here's our objective. It will become ours. It's currently just mine, but it'll be ours. This is being recorded. I should stop right now. (laughs) To see that everything, this is what we want to see, that everything God does is about furthering His mission. There's nothing that He does that's not about furthering His mission. That's what's true of God. Here's what it means for us. Our lives, then, as individuals and as the church, corporately, as a whole, are completely wrapped up in this mission as well. Everything that we do, the purpose of our lives, is wrapped up in God's mission. So, what, what we wanted to say is that mission is not, um, it's not, just a, it's not an add-on activity. It's not one of multiple things that the church is involved in. Instead, it is at the heart of who we are as a church. And so, this might be helpful for you. That, that, that mission is not something that the church does as much as it is something that the church is. Let's say it again. Mission is not so much something that the church does as much as it is something that the church is. And there are few places that are more uh, clear on that than what we'll look at this morning, which is God's promise to Abraham, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. A couple other quick things. Uh, Chris Wright's definition of mission. Fundamentally, our mission, if it's biblically informed and validated, means our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command in God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. And again, we said it's not exclusively redemptive. Um, Two weeks ago, we looked at God uh, being missional within Himself, is the way we put it, because of the members of the Trinity. God Himself is a relationship, and they they participate and exist in this relationship of mutual, self-giving love and glory. It's been that way for all eternity, and each member of the Godhead is moving towards the other members of the Godhead. So there's this outward focus, even within God Himself. And then we looked at creation, how God creates the world out of this abundance of His love in order that His glory would be manifest in the whole world. And the primary way in which that glory is going to show forth, that, that the way that He is going to uh, show who He is, is through people. His image bearers were to reflect His glory to the world. So this is going on in creation, and we looked at the fall and saw how things were messed up, but that God's mission continues even in the midst of sin. So that's where we've been. Um, 
This morning, like I said, we're going to be looking at God's promise to Abraham. That's Genesis 12. I've got it on your sheet if you uh, just want to look at it there. And we have to jump around to a number of passages, so they're mostly on your sheet. Here's where I want to start, though. I want to start with the end. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. I want you to picture this and think about this a little bit. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I want you to look at that at verse 9. It's a multitude that's greater than anybody could number. It's from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages. And I want to get, I want to flesh that out a little bit for you. I want you to think of white people. I want you to think of African American people. I want you to think of African people, Asian, Hispanic, Jew, and Gentile. I want you to think about people who have become Christians who were Shia, and people who have become Christians who were Sunnis. I want you to think about Christians from warring African tribes who have been warring for hundreds of years. Uh, I want you to think about Christians worshiping together who are from the Balkans, whose very existence, their whole lives has been made up of war and strife and continued conflict. I want you to think about people who have historically despised one another. Because that's the kind of animosity that that happens amongst certain countries, right? And then I want you to picture Christians from those countries then being together in Revelation 7 here as the end result. This is where things are headed. Ultimate reconciliation with God and ultimate reconciliation with one another. And the diversity is, is striking. It'll bring you to your knees. Okay, that's where we're headed we're going to back up and see where God starts the program for that end game. Question for us. What passage would you say that this text is fulfilling? Don't j- just forget what I told you we're talking about this morning, okay? What passage would you say this is the fulfillment of? If I just said, here, read Revelation 7. What's this fulfilling? too confusing or is it obvious I'm thank you thank you Carter the great commission Um, that's probably what we think of um, when we think about global missions and when we think about uh, yeah these world international sort of missions so we think of the great commission and we should that is a key text as we think about uh, going to all the ends of the earth and proclaiming the, the gospel. Um, but what I want to say this morning is that while that's a hugely important text, and it says something significant to us, we'll look at it some this morning, in fact, the call to go to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of the nations, actually goes back much, much earlier to this promise 
to Abraham. And so here's what Chris Wright says. Arguably, God's covenant with Abraham is the single most important biblical tradition within a biblical theology of mission and a missional hermeneutic of the Bible. So, quick summary. We finished uh, at Genesis 3 last time we talked about God's mission. Um, what's happened between that up to where Abraham is called, or when Abram is called, technically. Uh, you've got Cain murdering a- Abel. You've got evil getting much worse. You've got Noah and the flood, because uh, the thoughts of man's hearts are always are evil, always. The intentions of his hearts are always evil. God floods the earth, makes a covenant with Noah, saying he's not going to flood the earth again. But evil then, after the flood, continues to spread out throughout God's creation. And then we get to the Tower of Babel, where there is this attempt uh, to... Uh, make a name for themselves is the way that the text puts it, that they're building this what's probably like a ziggurat, this uh, religious temple up to God. And so here's where Chris Wright uh, says, so this is kind of where we are, Genesis 11 in the Bible. He says, what can God do next? And what's the solution to this awful, horrible problem of evil that is throughout God's good world? So what can God do next? Something that only God could have thought of. He sees an elderly, childless couple in the land of Babel and decides to make them the fountainhead, the launch pad of his whole mission of cosmic redemption. It's a really good quote um, that gets at, if you just saw this, somebody said, yeah, I've got an idea of how or the solution to this problem. We'll call this couple to take care of this. It'd be crazy. It's something that God alone can do. So we're going to look at... Um, these different elements of the promise. First, the pronouncement of the promise. Look at Genesis 12 that I have printed for you. This is the foundational text for uh, mission in the Bible. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Quick question as we start here is setting the scene. What does God command Abraham to do in this first verse? What does he say? To go. Yeah, to go from his land. Why would that be a huge deal in the ancient world? Family was everything. Yeah. What else? Or in what ways was family everything? Mm-hmm. Yeah, your homelands, your security. Um, it's not like you have your uh, investment accounts and all of your, uh, all of your resources and your capital stocked away in some bank account somewhere, right? You, 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 your wealth... Your possessions were the way in which you had your, your wealth. And so, and that was largely wrapped up in land as well. And so, to leave that is a huge, huge deal. And again, to Chris Wright's point, he's calling this wandering nomad. And we'll find out more about who he is um, this really old guy who's married to a really old wife, and they're unable to have kids. And so that is the, the way in which God is going to deal with the problem of evil in the world. That's how he's going to begin his work of redemption. And so, of course, from the very start, for us to notice is that God's call is gracious, that it comes out of nowhere. Abram's not done anything to this point that has merited God's favor. He's not shown himself to be a prime candidate as a missionary. 
Like, this is going to be the guy that we're going to use. No, it wasn't anything like that. It's coming from God, and it's completely gracious because, and this is important when we think about mission, it is God's mission primarily. And this is going to put on display that it is God who is going to accomplish His purposes. There's no way that Abram and Sarah can look to themselves and say, we're going to take care of this. It's humanly impossible, literally, okay? So it is a gracious call to them, and it is God's work. So I want to look at this in a couple different ways. One is the content of this promise. Really what this is, is one promise with three different facets. Some say it's kind of three promises. It's really one promise with three different aspects to it. And the first is the seed. And so what he's saying here is that this chosen family is going to be made into a great nation. He's going to create a people from the line of Abraham. And this is going to be the people that is his, the object of his affection, the people that he loves, the people that he has set his affection upon and that he has chosen out of his sheer grace and mercy to shower blessing upon. Now, what's the problem with this plan from the outset? It's going to be through your seed, Abraham. We've already mentioned it. What's the, what's the issue? Do what? Yeah, he doesn't have any kids, and he's old, and they uh, are barren. That's a problem from the start. How's this thing going to happen? Uh, and then second aspect, the land. Uh, eventually, the, the land of Canaan is going to be theirs. This is uh, clarified in Genesis 17. Um, the point, though, is that this is going to be a place for them to dwell with God. They're going to restore what was lost in Eden where God had dwelt with them uh, in, his, in this gracious way. It's going to happen in this land. Okay, what, what's the problem with that right now? Dwelling in the land of Canaan. Yeah, did you say mad people? Yes, that's right. Full of other mad, angry, tough nations who don't know the God of the Bible and aren't really interested in this couple showing up and saying, uh, actually, this is mine. God said, this is ours. You can go ahead and leave. Uh, so he's wandering. And it doesn't, it's not like he's bringing this military force to the table that would show that, okay, maybe this is possible. It looks completely impossible. So the land is a part of this promise. God says, I'm going to provide for you. And then the last aspect of this promise is blessing. He says that they will be a blessing to all peoples. And this is where in Genesis 17, God changes Abram's name, Abram, which is something like exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. He does that in Genesis 17. And we could summarize it this way. And this is a helpful phrase to to, uh, hold on to. That Abraham and his descendants are blessed in order to be a blessing. That the very intention of God from the start is that he would lavish blessing upon Abraham and his family and upon this people... But the intention from the start is not that they would selfishly enjoy it. So the reason that they experience this blessing is in order that they would be a blessing to other people. They're blessed in order to be a blessing. God was going to bless him so richly that it would result in the blessing of literally the entire world. That's the scope of this promise. And so I want to look just briefly at this word blessing. If you notice in just those couple of verses in 2 and 3... And I think I underlined these for you to, to get a picture of how prominent that is. Uh, yeah, he, he uses this five times in these two verses. So what does this mean? Okay, to understand what this means, we need to, to go back to the creation account. 
We're not going to turn there now. But if you remember, the way in Genesis 1, God creates the world. He says uh, God wants to create something. He says He's going to do it. Then He creates it. And then He says in a few different places, and God blessed them. Right? He uses that word over and over again. And so then it's used to describe, and this is intentional, describe what creation was about originally. It was in a blessed state. Creation as a whole before sin was in this state of blessing. So we could say it this way. Blessing is the state of how things are supposed to be, how they were created to be. And so what God is saying to Abram in this case is that it's, I'm going to actually bless the world through you. And what I mean by that is that we're going to get things back on track. I'm going to restore what is lost in the fall. It's actually going to end up being even better than what it was in Eden because this is not that the fall won't be possible anymore. Sin won't be possible, but I'm going to do this through you. This would be right relationships with God, right relationships with one another, and right relationships with the creation itself. And so the, the biblical word that, that gets used for this in other parts of the Old Testament is that of shalom, which we talk about often. Great definition from Cornelius Planiga on this, on what shalom is. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at, at its creator and sa- as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's blessing. That's what's coming through this promise to Abram. And of course, it's very early. It's, it's, um, it's shadowy and uncertain as to how this promise is going to come about. Um, but, and it's up against these odds. There's some real hindrances. There's some real challenges that have to be overcome. And again, that's going to show that it is God who's going to restore his broken creation and he's going to put it back to the way it's supposed to be. He's going to put it back to this way and state of shalom or blessing. So that's the content of this promise. And, and of course, we, we could look at this. We're not going to. Um, Abram struggles big time to believe this promise. That's what happens in Genesis 15. You go on a little farther, and this is where there's this big covenant-cutting ceremony that takes place where they divide the animals, they, uh, and then there's this flaming uh, torch, this uh, pot that goes through in between the animals. And God makes this promise because in the midst of that, Abram is saying, how am I supposed to know that I'm going to have a, uh, that, that there will be this people that comes from my line. I still can, can continue childless. And so God confirms these promises to him. He continues to struggle to believe him. Genesis 17 is the place where circumcision is, uh, is put in place. And that, that is to show a, another sign of, this, uh, of God's covenant faithfulness, of his promise to bring about what he says he's going to bring about. So there are these challenges, and Abraham struggles against it. But this is what... Uh, the covenant's all about, that God is going to use this couple and through this couple bless the world. So that's some of the content of the promise. Now, just for our purposes today, I want to highlight the scope of this promise. It's a little bit arbitrary to pull this out because we've already talked about this some, but I want to emphasize it. Um, And we don't know how this is going to happen at first, and if you look at Genesis 12, he says, I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And then in you, all the families of the earth or these kinship groups will be blessed. That's a little 
uh, shadowy, right? I mean, we don't really know what this is going to look like. Um, We're not certain how it's going to happen next. It becomes much clearer, though, when we get into, I mean, even in the rest of Genesis, but when we get into Exodus in particular, when Israel is constituted as a people, and you start realizing, okay, this is how this is going to happen. It's going to happen through God's people, Israel, and that the nations are going to be blessed. Genesis 22, a restatement of this promise. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations, see now it's nation language here, all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then this is reaffirmed to Isaac in Genesis 26. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, It's interesting that, you know, when you get to the New Testament, and we'll get there in a moment, and and over and over again, particularly in Paul's letters, at least in an overt way, Jesus is dealing with this in the Gospels as well, there's this huge tension between Jews and Gentiles. And and in some parts of Paul's letters, you think of Ephesians, for example, um, where he's talking about the mystery being revealed. It's, It's... I think some people think that uh, it's as though Jew and Gentile being included in the people of God is some novel New Testament thing. That, that this multinational uh, community of God's people was not really what God had in mind until Jesus came. And that's just not the case. Um, what we see here is that based on this promise to Abraham, God from the start has always had a global scope to his salvation. He's always been a missionary God who has been concerned with all nations. It was just through Israel that that was going to take place. Um, And so it wasn't as though he was just, that he only ever cared about Israel up until Jesus came. It's like, okay, maybe we should open this up a bit more and, and care about other people in the world. It's always been global in scope. He's always had the nations in mind. But it was going to be through this particular people, through Abraham's family, through his seed. So God's mission is to redeem and restore the whole world, to reach all nations with this saving message of the gospel through Abraham's descendants. So this would be humanity and right relationship with God, with one another, and with the world. It's the kingdom restored, and ultimately it finds, of course, its fulfillment in Jesus. We'll look at that in a moment. Um, Any questions or comments there on the... The promise itself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and, and of course, um, what happens in the Old Testament a good bit too is that um, there are Gentiles, non-ethnic Israelites. Or not non. This doesn't make sense. Of course, they're not Israelites. They're they're not Jews. They're not Israelites. Um, but they are brought into the community. There are provisions for that uh, for the the stranger in your land, even participating in the uh, in the Passover feast. God makes specific provision for them, and so it was always that was always God's intention. That uh, and we'll look at this in a moment. That Israel's worship, Israel's life together, and this gets real important. In, uh, in Exodus, when God gives the law, 
where the intention was that Israel's life as a country, as a community, as a people, was to provoke other nations so that they look and they go, oh, what? I, I want that. This is what we want. This is what we're created for. And so that that would be this uh, attractive way of what it looks like to be in relationship with God and that it would provoke other nations then to desire God in that way and that, that would be a way in which it goes forward. Yeah, any, anything else? Other? Okay. okay, so then the ongoing character of the promise. What does this look like as it makes its way through uh, the Old Testament? And of course, for the rest of this semester, so much of what we talk about, because we have to, we'll be coming back to seeing how this continues. So uh, next week, Ryan will talk some about, about the Exodus and... We'll talk a good bit about this, but I just want to highlight a few things real quick here, uh, just a couple of points within the Old Testament. So again, it's further clarified that this promise appears five times in Genesis itself. We looked at a couple more of those. Um, It's further clarified when Israel is constituted as a nation under Moses. Um, We need to see this, that the Old Testament could be rightly described as a missional document. It is the story of God's promise going out. That's what's happening in the Old Testament and the question of how will God fulfill his promise to Abraham. And so the call to Israel based on this promise became that of being a light to the nations. They were called to be a light to the nations because they were blessed in order to be a blessing. Find out, of course, they botched that one pretty significantly. But that is their call, to be a light to the nations and that they're blessed in order to be a blessing. Psalm 67, an example of how this was a part of Israel's worship. You see, uh, this is an incredible psalm. It combines both the, um, uh, the blessing of Aaron in number 6 at the beginning, kind of a meditation on that, combined with the Abrahamic promise. So here's what it says. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Bless us so that other nations will know this. Verse 3, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So significant outward focus to their worship. The desire is that the nations would come to know the God of the Bible. Now, of course, what we know, because we're familiar with the Old Testament, that this doesn't go so well. Um, Israel is not going to serve as a very faithful light to the nations. In fact, they're going to fall into significant idolatry. They're going to... uh, It's kind of... They've got a mixed relationship with the nations. In some ways, they then fully... like. We're going to adopt everything that they do. We're going to intermarry in ways that God says not to. And in so doing, we're going to adopt the gods of these nations. So that's like being too caught up in the nations. And then the other tendency is to draw stark lines between them and not care at all about the nations around them. Israel does both of these things and messes things up. So, um, long story, very short, they fail as a light to the nations. They fail in their mission and then so what arises in the Old Testament is this prophecy of, of, of true Israel or of a servant of Israel who's going to come or of a remnant 
of faithful Israel who is and will accomplish this task. And just a couple examples of this from Isaiah. Again, we could look all over the place for this. There's first this, this stump of Jesse, the shoot from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11. And that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And then uh, this great phrase or this great passage from Isaiah 49. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, this is the servant, one of the servant songs, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, blessed in order to be a blessing. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. They're to be a light to the nations, they fail but yet there's this promise. And so the Old Testament ends with some significant unanswered questions, uh, like, how is God going to do this? How is God going to fulfill His promise to bless the world and to reestablish His kingdom through His people Israel when they keep blowing it, when they continue to rebel, when they continue to fail? And so the, pro- the, the, the question is, how can God keep His promise? How is this going to happen? Is the promise to Abraham just going to kind of fall flat and never be fulfilled? It kind of looks that way. We don't really know. And, and that, that's, as a bit of a side note, you think about the, um, the intertestamental period where there are these 400, 500 years of silence from God where Israel is waiting and longing for this. I mean, like generation after generation of Israelites are born still thinking, is it going to happen now? And dying, not seeing the fruit of those promises. Very, very tough situation. And that's the scene into which Jesus comes. And so we see then the fulfillment of the promise, uh, thirdly and finally here. Again, so many ways that we could say this and highlight this. uh, So many passages to point to. We'll be looking at others throughout the semester. I'll give you a handful of them. Um, First, interesting uh, little bit here. Jesus is announced from the very start as the fulfillment to the Abrahamic promise. This is before Jesus' birth in Zechariah's song. So Luke 1, 72 and 73, praising God for all of this that's happening, says to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. This covenant with Abraham. The oath that He swore to our father Abraham. So the connection is made from the very start before Jesus' birth that what is happening here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Still not certain how it's going to work out, but we know God is doing something huge, and He's going to fulfill His promise. And then, throughout Jesus' life, you see that He's put forward over and over again in the Gospels as the faithful Israelite. A way to say this, and this is kind of a Tim Keller way to say this, that He is the true and better Israel. He, He succeeds where Israel has failed. And I've got a little way that you can see this even in Matthew, although this, this applies even to what we talked about some this morning with the transfiguration and the connection of Jesus being the true and better Moses, true and better Elijah. 
So here's what it looks like, even if we just take the beginning of Matthew, who is very, uh, of all the gospel writers, they're all very sensitive to it, but he's particularly sensitive to the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. So first you get the genealogy in Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then he begins with Abraham. Luke doesn't do that in his genealogy. Luke goes back to Adam. He's got a different audience, different purposes for what he's doing there. But what Matthew wants us to see is, okay, Jesus is of the line of Abraham. Uh, He is part of the seed. Uh, This is going to be a way in which God is going to fulfill his promise or could fulfill his promise. Matthew 2. Jesus, as an infant, leaves Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Exodus, right? Just like Israel, they're called out of Exodus. They're called out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is the true and better Israel. Matthew 3. Jesus' baptism is likened to Israel crossing the Jordan when leaving Egypt. He's then pronounced, he said, that this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Israel has been called God's son in the Old Testament. Jesus now is uh, the ultimate son of God. Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. That corresponds to Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Big difference, though, is that, remember, Israel grumbled, complained, and asked to go back into slavery. It didn't go so well in the wilderness with them. They didn't, uh, they didn't accomplish, or they, they caved to the temptation in the midst of the wilderness. Jesus, on the other hand, is faced with these three significant temptations from Satan, and he does not fall prey to them. He succeeds where Israel fails. Matthew 5, Jesus goes up on the mountain, just like Moses, Exodus 24, to speak then the Sermon on the Mount, just like, Jesus, or just like Moses gives this covenant law to the people of God. So, What's Matthew? What are the gospel writers wanting us to see all over the place? Jesus is the faithful Israelite. He is the one in whom these promises of Abraham will find their fulfillment. Um, He is the servant, thirdly, of Israel as the light to the nations. This is again in Matthew. Um, Yeah, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And look at the last verse. And in his name, the Gentiles, the nations, will hope. So this is who Jesus is, and it's what he's come to do. So Jesus is the fulfillment, ultimately, of this promise. But let me make a connection for us now uh, in our remaining time. This is fulfilled in the church as well. Uh, Paul is at great pains to show us that we are also the seed of Abram, right? This Jew-Gentile community. And Paul makes this incredible statement in Galatians 3. And I think this is easy to kind of gloss over because there's some other things that we're pretty... Uh, focus on a lot of times in the book of Galatians. But listen to what he says in Galatians 3. So just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, that's the end of a different paragraph, but it could be consider Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, listen to this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed 
along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul's saying that what we just read in Genesis 12 is the gospel announced beforehand. That's a huge statement, but this just shows that this is the outworking of God's redemptive plan in the world. He has always, from the start, wanted to see his salvation extend to the ends of the earth. This Jew-Gentile community of which we are now a part is actually a fulfillment of that. So we are the people of God that's made up of ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. Um, a couple passages that get at that, Galatians 3, um, that we're sons of Abraham, Romans 4, same thing. So we are the seed of Abraham. Uh, move through these quickly. We're sent then also by Jesus to be a light to the nations. So we take on this mantle of the call. Um, this mission to, uh, that, that we ourselves are also blessed in order to be a blessing. And so, now we can read the Great Commission of Matthew 28 in maybe a little bit of a more um, a, uh, fuller, uh, more fully orbed light than in light of this Genesis 12 promise. So listen to this thinking about God's promise to Abraham. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm king. I've, been, I've ra- been raised from the dead. I'm about to ascend into heaven where I will take the throne. I am the king. I've got all authority. In light of that authority now, 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus as king sends us out. The scope is the same. To the, it's to the nations. Disciple all the nations. Um, and then in Luke-Acts, we get this emphasis on being equipped for this mission by the Spirit and the way in which we would be witnesses. So look at Luke 24. Uh, it says, And the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. And then Acts 1, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, of course, we'll talk about this a lot when we uh, we'll look at Pentecost towards the end of the semester. But you see right here in Acts 2, what's happening at Pentecost is really the reversal of, of what happened at Babel when all the languages were confused. Now God is proclaiming this gospel message, and these people are speaking in foreign languages that they don't know themselves. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the nations believing the gospel. It is huge. Pentecost is all about the mission of God going out. And, and we... Sorry? Yeah, it's early Wycliffe. That's right. Yeah. Uh, they know those languages. That might be the only significant difference. <laughs> but yeah, they're going out to all these nations. The gospel's proclaimed in those nations. So... Jesus now is at work by His Spirit through His church. The nations are part of this. Um, I'm not going to read that very lengthy quote, but I would ask you to, because it's really good, and it gets at uh, kind of pulling some of these things together. A um, couple questions. Uh, thinking about world missions, global missions, what are some challenges, uh, fears, concerns, hindrances to our being involved in God's mission to the world in more substantial ways. What are some ways that this is hard for us? We don't want to go. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Encounter hostility. Yeah. 
yeah, opposition to this message of the gospel. What else? Yeah, yeah, it's as though it, uh, we forget that rather than it being our mission, it's really us participating in God's mission. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, which is probably wrapped up in that same misunderstanding about whose mission it is that we're participating in. Because if it's all on our shoulders, uh, if we're the ones who are responsible to make things, you'd like to see change, see people come to faith, um, primarily, and the, the onus is completely on us, then um, I'd just rather not do that because I'm pretty sure what would happen if I were responsible for it. It's not pretty. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah, it's just hard. Uh, sorry? Oh, it costs, yes, yeah. It costs money, uh, it's inconvenient, uh, it costs life, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a quote that's a haunting quote from uh, Francis Schaeffer at the end of his book, um, The Church at the End of the 20th Century. And he says basically that um, the reason we don't care about our non-Christian friends is that we don't really believe people are going to hell. And it's like, ugh, okay. Um, we don't have this motive. We don't see things as we probably should to have this... Um, and there's certainly this positive motivator to say you are a part of the biggest, most important story that has ever been or ever will be, and we get to participate in that. The, the significance and the purpose that gives to us is unparalleled for sure, and we should be motivated positively, but at the same time, we need to feel the weight of uh, this is literally a life or death thing. There's a life or death component to this for these people that we um, have the opportunity to go to and to love and to proclaim this message of life to. Yeah. Um, anything else? We're, we're done here now. Time. Um, uh, Tim Sasser just got back from South Sudan and um, could tell you some good uh, global mission stories that are very fresh in the ministry that he's involved in there with church planning. And of course, the opportunity to be involved with our missions committee is there. And uh, I know they are always welcoming people of who have all kinds of different gifts to offer and to serve on, but uh, that committee is a wonderful place to do that. And participating in mission trips we ourselves as a church do and trying to get more involved with our missionaries are great ways as well in terms of prayer, support, visiting, etc. So, um, that is God's call to us. We're blessed in order to be a blessing. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you uh, for the glory of this call. Lord, we pray that you'd stir in us as individuals and in us as a church a desire to see the nations come to you. And we pray that your spirit would move in significant ways and that we would see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray through Christ our King, the one who can and will bring this about. Amen.
Kenny, how are you? I thought I'd come down here and thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I appreciate it. Good to see you. 